I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. I know the heading, um, it just says sermon text. It doesn't tell you what passage of Scripture we're looking at. But we're looking at Proverbs 4 this morning, beginning in verse 18 and concluding with verse 27. So this is Proverbs 4, verse 18, ending with verse 24. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word that He has given to us in love to minister to us so that we would know His love and grow in His grace. But the path of the righteous is like the, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your hearts with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given to us. And we pray that your spirit would be ministering in our hearts. That your spirit would be showing us your word, convicting us of your word, and encouraging us as well. That by your, the power of your spirit, your word would be planted deeply in our hearts and that we would bear fruit, its fruit in its life, in our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So over in the Fairmont neighborhood of Philadelphia is Eastern Penitentiary. The penitentiary was actually one of the very first penitentiaries built in the United States. Men and women would be convicted of their crimes and they would be sent there. But the purpose of this jail is actually in its name. Penance. Penance, like to confess. And so society wanted these convicts to confess their sins, their transgressions of the law, and be changed. That was the hope, that convicts would be changed, that they would experience great moral reform. Like So Ben Franklin was one of the benefactors and lobbyists for this penitentiary. But here's the thing, though. As men and women would be convicted, their sentence, their jail time, was actually to solitary confinement that they would be confined to solitude. They would be all by themselves for days, weeks, perhaps even up to two years. The, you would only be allowed to see your chaplain. Even the guards, when they would be walking down the hallways, they wore socks over their shoes so you wouldn't hear them walking by. And when you would be moved from one room to another, they would come to your cell that, yes, they themselves would be hooded, and then they would put a hood over you. Solitary confinement, that was really the means in which that these convicts were, that was the means through which these convicts were hoped to be changed. See, many of the time thought that, that moral reform, change, would actually come from within you. So the strategy was simply, let's remove all the distractions in your life. But yet this 
Philadelphia experiment was actually soundly rejected. It didn't work whatsoever. Now we look back at this and we see this practice as not just harmful, it would actually be traumatic. A person would be re-entering society colder, harder, traumatized, and perhaps even more mentally unstable. And so as we come to Proverbs this morning, we are once again entering into our counselor's office, spending time with Jesus, and he is walking us through Proverbs. In this passage here in Proverbs 4, we see, once again, there's two ways of life. But the question of Proverbs I want us to highlight this morning is how do we change? How do we change? How do we move from foolishness to wisdom? How do, if we are the simple, which we talked about last week, how do we grow in wisdom? And even if we are the fool or the mocker or one who's scoffing at God in his righteous ways, how do we change? Those are the questions I want us to really be thinking about this morning. How do we change? But before we dive into the, that, that question in light of this text, as we think about society, I want, our society actually offers many different philosophies of change. Some of these philosophies of change undermine, they compete, they contradict one another. And so we, as we th think about this question, how do you change, as we think about this, what is actually very clear is that nothing is as obvious as the fact that we need to change, but we don't know what needs to be changed or how we change. There's a lot of ignorance, a lot of, big, and there's a lot of ignorance just because there's all these rival competing ideas about how you change. So within like psychologies, and there's many of them, there's cognitive therapy where you change your life by correcting your thinking. There's behavioral therapy, which really, like if you change your behavior, you'll change your, your life as well. And now these things can be very helpful, but that doesn't get to the core of the issue. Family therapy, where you think about your family of origin, it can be very helpful in understanding your story. But again, it, it doesn't get to the core of the issue. And see, it, many books have great promise. One book, The Enneagram, The Road to Self-Discovery. And so here's the question, as I want to ask about our culture, can you really know yourself? Can you really change if you don't know Christ? And that's one of the questions that Proverbs asks us. So again, to the question this morning is, how do you change? And the, one of the first things that we, we see from this text is here in verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flowed the springs of life. First thing I want to highlight is that change is a matter of the heart. Change is a matter of the heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the, the springs of life. I can go to Proverbs 27, 19, and this is what we read. As a mirror shows the face of a man, so the heart shows the character of a man. Change is a matter of the heart. So we're here, friends, not just as rational people, as James K. Smith said, brains on a stick. We are not just reduced to rational creatures with no emotions. Nor are we just being reduced to our emotions, with our feelings, or even what we do, our actions. As human beings, we are actually far more complex than that. And as we look at Scripture, Scripture sees the foundation of who we are within our heart. That's here in Proverbs. 
Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flowed the springs of life. But also think about Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all, with all your strength. The point is, love God with everything within you. But do you notice how to love, how the heart is described? The heart loves God. The heart is actually what desires. The heart is what loves and so our culture, when we just think about the heart, our culture says the heart wants what the heart wants. There's a certain pessimism here. There's this inability to change. And frankly, that's actually true. Jeremiah, an Old Testament pro- prophet, asked this, can a leopard change its spots? Can you imagine a leopard changing its spots? Can a person change the color of their skin? And the answer is no. And so it is with our hearts. The picture of scripture is that we are actually unable to change our hearts. But here's also some good news that comes from scripture. It's Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah talks about this too. But Ezekiel says this, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a a heart, a new heart. I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow all my statutes and carefully obey my ordinances. See, here from Ezekiel, God does a mighty work within us. God does nothing less than a miraculous heart transplant. He takes our cold, dead heart out of us and gives to us a new heart that is alive and beating. And then he also gives us his spirit that helps us obey his commandments. But do you notice how one-sided it is? God's the one who removes our dead heart. God's the one who gives us a new heart. God's the one who breathes a new spirit into us that causes us to obey his commands, that empowers us to obey God. So we don't do any of these things. We're actually the the patient that is under anesthesia. And so if you're going to change, this is actually the first thing you must embrace, that we are dead apart from Christ. This is the first thing that we need to embrace if we're going to change. We are dead apart from Christ. Jesus himself said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's Matthew 5 to 2, for they shall see God. See, Jesus says we need to acknowledge and own our spiritual poverty if we are going to have life with God. So Paul Miller, he wrote this incredible book called J-Curve, Rising and Dying with Christ in Our Everyday Life. The premise of the book is actually in Romans 5, which we read for our assurance of forgiveness, which we sang about in the character song. And this this idea that through the dying to ourselves and rising with Christ, it's through that pattern in the everyday moments of our life that we will grow and change. And this is how he talks about this moment right here of owning our spiritual poverty, that we are dead apart from Christ. He talks about this as our surrendered will, our surrendered will. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, then we're able to do some deep work within our hearts. In fact, it's not just us who's able to do the deep work in our hearts. We are aware of God doing his deep work within our hearts. And this includes asking ourselves some questions of what is it that you love? What are the things that you desire? What are the things that you want? Like that's your will. What are the things that you do? Those are your actions. So Miller talks about this as the love change. So that love, the heart, leads 
to your will. Your will leads to your actions. That one thing leads to the, the other. But what's at the, the core of the issue is your heart. It's not your actions. It's not your behavior. It's not even your thinking. The heart is at the center That one leads to the other. And so this is why that all throughout Proverbs, Proverbs is fixated on your heart. Because guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. See, while God gives us a new heart, we live in a sinful world. That sin still dwells within us. It's wonderful and it's true that Jesus saved us from the penalty of sin, But the reality is that today Jesus is saving us from the power of sin. Sin is still at work within us. And there's this battle. And we will never be done with this battle. Sin will, we will never truly experience how sin is broken until we die. Because on that day when we are glorified and we go to be with Jesus It's on that moment, in that day. That is when we will be saved from the presence of sin. See, sin is still present in our everyday lives. Sin throws its weight around. And so life with God, it is life, but it is also a battle. The the battle to love God with everything we have, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it is a battle. Paul talked about it this way. We do not do the things that we want, and we don't do the things we don't want to do. And so we take good things like family or work, and we elevate them and put them above God. So we'll take our reputation, our financial security, our all incredibly good things, and then we make them ultimate and then have those things determine how we shape our lives. And Scripture is very clear on this, and this is idolatry. I know I've shared ways that I, I've struggled with my own heart idols. So, and it's, it's not just one. We don't just have one heart idol. We actually have many heart idols. Like if I would insist on my, the, my own comfort, I would neglect Jennifer. I would neglect my boys. I would avoid doing chores. And that would be seen as laziness. You would be able to look at that and see that you are being disengaged. And so that would be my behavior. But what's going on in my heart is that I would be the one who's actually insisting on what needs to happen and how it happens. I would think that I am at the center of my own life, and that is so far from the truth. And so to fight idolatry within our hearts, it takes a daily repentance. But what actually knocks idols off their throne in our lives is not a battle on my part, but actually God's love. See, God's love, this is another thing that we need to change. God's love at work within our hearts because grace begets gratitude. Grace is meant to cultivate gratitude. Just think about this, that God loves you and you have not done anything to earn that love, that God loves you before you have even lived or existed. God loves you, so you have no reason to boast. If in that relationship, what can you say to God? The only thing that you can actually say to God is, thank you. In Romans 1, we read that God's kindness is meant to lead to obedience. 
And so here's Isaiah, and Isaiah, when he would encounter the holiness of God, he would say, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And God would come to him, and he healed him, he removed the uncleanness. And then Isaiah surrenders to the Lord and says, here I am, send me. This is the picture of grace, that grace leads to gratitude, that God's kindness leads to obedience. And so Proverbs wants you to see with utmost clarity the consequences of your actions. But it's not just that. Proverbs wants you to see the consequences that flow from your heart. That it is your heart that actually determines your true character and what you do. Because change is a matter of the heart. That is the foundation of who we are. But so not only is change, as we think about this, not only is change a matter of the heart, which we see from verse 23. In verse 18, we read about the path of the righteous. Another thing to consider is that change is a community project. Change is a community project. In Proverbs, here's the father speaking to the son. But actually in the midst of Proverbs 4, it's not just the father speaking to the son. The father is actually reflecting on his own upbringing, on his own childhood. And he's speaking to his son and saying, essentially saying, your grandfather taught me a certain way. And I am passing on those lessons to you. And that it's getting at this idea that change is a community project. So one of the best books, actually the best book I read over sabbatical, was a book entitled How to Stay Married. The author is Harrison Scott Key. And this book is not for everyone, by the way. It can actually um, could be, come off as irreverent or just it could be too honest, could be too, too raw. But it's a story that is incredibly honest. It's very hopeful. But it's a story of where this man's wife cheats on him. But without blaming, without accusation, without anger, the, the author is writing this story and he says this that my marriage is dead and I have killed it. My marriage is dead and I have killed it. And so this book explores how he and his wife together killed their marriage. But what is beautiful about the story is that they're still married. They're holding on to hope. And if you would read his other books, and there's a few of them, you would actually find out that this is actually a weird dude. He, in fact, like his pastor told him at after a counseling session, that being married to him would be incredibly difficult. It would be very difficult to be married to you, he said. And so some examples of this is the end. Like one is that when they would, that he would never lock the door at night. And so one morning they wake up, their daughter was nowhere in the house. She was, in fact, in the park across the street. Another example is that he would put his, his girls in the basket on the bicycle, never putting a, a helmet on them. And his wife would be like, don't you care about our children's safety? He would never make the bed, do the chores. When he was home, he would always be thinking about lectures. He was just never present. And that's the starting point. That's the starting point. But then over the years, through the crisis, through the suffering, through, at the end of the book, he writes this, I now empty the dishwasher unprompted, which is a kind of miracle. I am well aware of the mystery of the death and resurrection of my marriage. It is not solved by some complex algorithm or strange transaction of household chores. I'm not doing all this to keep my wife from having another affair. I'm doing this because I love her. And it's that last sentence that really strikes me. I'm not doing this to keep my wife from having another affair. I'm doing this because I love her. That's beautiful. 
And that's truly beautiful. And he continues to go on in this one chapter. He says that to stay married, you'll need more than therapy. You'll need an entire community of people who are insane enough to love you. Who will not lie about what is wicked or wondrous within your hearts. And for us, that entire community of people is our church. And as I, as I read this, this has sat with me for months. But I, this truly applies to our sanctification and what Proverbs is telling us. Because if we're going to grow in wisdom, you're going to need an entire community of people. If you're going to grow, change, and become more like Christ, you need a group of people who are surrounding you and who believe that is possible. You need an entire community of people who believe that, yes, you can change. That they're not cold. They're not cynical. They're not pessimistic. They're, in fact, full of hope and faith. That, yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit in in your life, that you will become more like Jesus Christ. And they love you. And they're committed to you. And that they're not going anywhere. This is so, this is true for our sanctification. And so for anyone to change, we need people who believe that, yes, we can change. And friends, this sounds so wonderful. This sounds wonderful. Because, again, this is Proverbs, this is jumping ahead, but as iron sharpens iron, brothers sharpening one another. This is the, the way of Jesus, that change is a community project. And so this type of commitment that we need to change is actually marked by God himself, of God's friendship, of God's hesed love, which we talked about a few weeks ago, that God is steadfast and his own steadfast love for us. Now, so going back to Harrison, he, would ask, he asked this question, how did they love us? And he would say that they would call, they came over when I called, they listened to news no one else wanted to hear. They sat with us hearing our stories. They asked questions. And in that empathy, something awoke in my heart and within my wife's heart. But, all, but really what we did is that we fed each other with food, with words, and our presence. Sprinkled with hymns, prayers, and sermons to, to remind us why. So at the end of this, do you believe you can change? Do you believe you can change? See, to answer that question, it takes hope, but it's a hope that is used in a way differently than how we use it in our everyday lives. As we think about how we use this word hope, I hope the Phillies win the World Series. I hope the Eagles win today. I hope I get the job. I hope, I hope. Like, how do you just finish the sentence? See, that is not how Scripture uses hope whatsoever. That's really, that idea of hope is wishes. It's good thoughts. But hope, how Scripture uses it, is actually a confidence. It's a confidence in a sure thing. That our hope is actually based upon God's true word. That, and he tells us in Proverbs that he will not leave a work unfinished. God never leaves a, a job or a work that is unfinished. And God is doing something in you and in me. And he will never stop until it is finished. And what's so beautiful about this is that here's God, the one who has all the power in the world, and he is more committed to our growth than we are. 
that he is committed, so committed to our growth that he says, it's going to happen, and I will work and use everything, all the hardship and the difficult circumstances, all your sufferings, I will use all of that to ensure that you are growing and becoming more like Jesus Christ. It's in that suffering and in that difficulty that we experience God's redemption in our daily lives. And God says it, and it's true. So that is our hope. And let's look to him because he is the one who enables us and empowers us to change. Let's pray to him. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given to us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to keep our hearts with all vigilance. Because from our heart flow the springs of life. Father, we pray that you would help us to do this in the coming days. That you would help us to put away uh, the way our crooked speech, devious talk. Help us to cast our eyes upon you. That we would continue to look to you. Considering your wonderful work that you have done for us. And Father, we pray that your spirit would use the words that have been planted in our heart today to bring about change in our life. That you would help us to sit with you and to examine our hearts, but that we, we would also lean into the relationships that are around us to move towards one another so that we can experience greater joy and change and redemption through your people. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.